0: big buck registries deer hunting podcast episode number 164 michael waddell strike quick strike hard hunt smart the origins of the bone collector and early season deer hunting tactics please support our sponsors as they make this show possible today's show is sponsored by morse's sporting goods Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level.
1: Hi, I'm Greg Ritz with Hunt Masters. You're listening to one of my favorite podcasts on iTunes, the Big Buck Registry Big Buck Podcast. Hi, this is Jared Sheffler from Whitetail Adrenaline. You're listening to my favorite hunting podcast ever, Jay and Dusty, on the Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Podcast. I'm Lee McCoskey. And I'm Tiffany McCoskey, and you're listening to our favorite hunting podcast on iTunes. The Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. Thanks for joining me once again and joining Dusty Phillips from Ohio we're both in the studio, and we're hanging out with you in your car, wherever you are, on your iDevice, on your iPhone, whatever you're listening to this show on. Hey, you know what? It's going to be a pretty darn good day, because we're hanging out together right here talking about deer hunting. Have a great lineup for you, and Dusty's psyched about this one, because he, this, our guest today is one of the most humble and charismatic deer hunters you'll ever meet, and Dusty, I don't think you'll disagree with me. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't
2: disagree with you one bit, Jay. He's,
0: uh, all right.
2: Michael Waddell. Michael, Michael Waddell is in the studio with us today. Yeah, man, that's that's exciting just to say the name, Michael Waddell.
0: Yeah, he's such a good cat man. He's he's uh, he's funny and he enjoys life and he's uh, he doesn't he doesn't take himself too seriously. He's very humble. Uh, you, you'll you'll hear him say that uh, during the interview, and you can tell. He just doesn't get all caught up in the whole rat race. You know, it's not like, look at me. Although he is very popular, people like him. So it's it's not like he's not in the spotlight. He is. But you know what? He doesn't take, it doesn't go to his head. That's basically what it comes down to. And that's nice to see.
2: Yeah, he's just, uh, he's down to earth, man. You know, and that he's level about what he's doing. And uh, he ain't scared to voice his opinion. Exactly. You know, but it, it, it's amazing just how much uh, some other celebrity hunters are scared to voice their opinion where michael's you know it is what it is
0: right right you think it's you know i would put michael towards the pinnacle of all the celebrity hunters that are out there you know if, if you had to like line them up i'd say you know probably the shockies are on the top of their game as far as popularity i would say that um willie robertson duck dynasties although i'm still wondering if they actually hunt or not uh, because i hardly ever see it i'm sure they do but th- it's not really a hunting show and then i'd say the what else you know michael waddell and his gang with nick munt and t-bone turner
2: right and then you gotta put michael pitts next in line
0: you know well of course michael oversees all of them if you had to like rank them michael pitts is probably a, just a hair above all of them <laughs> as he would say i'd say they probably all learn from michael pitts right him. yeah he is he is the master. He is the one that brings to us the world of polished deer hunting celebrities. He is the one. He is the guy that finishes them off and makes them ready for the big time. Michael Pitts. Yeah, yeah. I did uh, walk out to the truck and, and
2: man, that the air is getting feeling right, Jay.
0: It is, doesn't it? its is not it it has got that it's got that smell and that feel to it. It's cool. It's crispy-like. Yeah. A lot of that humidity has disappeared, and it's got this like dry crispness to it. I mean, that, September
2: is here, people. Yes, some people in Ohio this morning, if you listen to the show Saturday morning here, you're
0: hunting. Yes, you are. The opener is today. That's right. We've got some people out in the field right now actually shooting up the resident geese in New Hampshire. You know, it's it's that time of year, so yeah, it just feels hunting like it. season is officially here in some capacity. I can almost feel like the hair on the back of my neck <laughs> ankle, a little bit when we're talking about it. It ge- it gives you the chills, man. It makes you feel good. It gives you the warm and fuzzies. Like it's finally here. We finally,
2: wait, we waited all this time. Like, yeah, I remember last year getting close to the end of season, I had a doe tag, and I said, "Man, I like to shoot a doe," but it didn't happen. Like, man, I passed on some decent does. I should have shot one of them. You know, for meat in the freezer. The last day, you're like, ah, man, I got a long time to wait for this opens back up. You know? Yeah, exactly.
0: But it's here. It's here, man. It's time. Time to get out there. Time to get out in the field. It's got that. It's still a little early, and it's going to feel a little warmer in the day. But the evenings and the mornings, holy smokes, talk about a chill up your spine. As you mentioned, absolutely unbelievable. Before we get to Michael
2: Waddell,
3: we need to get with Jim Keller with the deer news for the Big Buck Registry. This is Jim Keller with the deer news. Our first story this week, Robotic Decoys Help Nab Poachers. This story was written by Jackie Crosby of the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Brian Woolslegal was fresh out of school and looking for work as a firefighter when he took a temporary job with a taxidermist. One day a warden walked into the shop near Wausau, Wisconsin and asked if he could build a robotic deer to help catch an illegal hunter. More than 20 years later, his business, Custom Robotic Wildlife, is now one of the oldest and best regarded of its kind in North America. Each year, Wolslegel builds an, a menagerie of about 150 lifelike remote-controlled animals, mostly for wildlife enforcement officers in states and American Indian reservations across the U.S. and Canada. Today, his white-tailed deer can be made to independently move their ears and tail, stomp their legs, and slide on a track that makes them appear to walk. He's made robotic animals as big as a bear and as small as a squirrel. He's sold pigs to game wardens in Texas and elk to clients out west. It's difficult to quantify how valuable the robotic animals are in the fight against poachers who, by some estimates, take as many fish and wildlife as legitimate hunters each year. An Oregon police officer reported that the state raised $30,000 in fines over a five-year period off a single deer koi, which costs them about $2,500. White-tailed deer are by far the most popular order, costing about $2,500. A turkey, the second most popular, is about $2,000. and elk runs about 4500 For more information about the manufacturing process and Brian's company, please check out our show notes on BigBuckRegistry.com. 13-foot alligator taken at Florida Farm. This story was originally featured on OutdoorHub.com. Employees at OutWest Farms posted a picture of a massive 13-foot alligator that was harvested last week by Cliff Lightsey in Okeechobee. It was the second largest gator taken in the area recently after an even larger 15-foot reptile was killed by hunters in April, which was targeted because it was suspected of attacking and even eating cattle. Out West Farm also doubles as a hunting outfitter, due in part to the abundant number of alligators and wild pigs in the area. While it may be good for one part of the business, having large predators nearby is decidedly a concern for the farm's livestock. Lee Lightsey, who owns the OutWest Farms, said he was grateful the hunters killed the 13-foot alligator before it could make any moves on his cattle. Alligators are generally not a threat to livestock or humans, but as large predatory animals, they can be very dangerous. Most native Floridians already know to be wary of waters where alligators reside. For additional details in the story, including pictures of this huge gator, please check out our show notes. <laughs> Deer and Deer Hunting Joins Pursuit Channel, announces Block. This story was originally featured on the DeerAndDeerHunting.com website. America's original, categorically exclusive media authority, dedicated to white-tailed deer and hunting, will move to Pursuit Channel in 2017, announced Jamie Wilkinson, Vice President and Group Publisher of F&W Outdoors, the parent company of Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. Destination Whitetail and Land of Whitetail, two of hunting's most popular television series, will join Deer and Deer Hunting TV in this historic move to the Pursuit Channel. One upshot of this new relationship will be the creation of a Deer and Deer Hunting Saturday Night Deer Camp, which will be a two-hour block featuring a handcrafted selection of the best whitetail hunting shows on television that will be anchored by the 13th season of D&DH TV. For a link to this story, please check our show notes. Indiana Collecting Deer Samples After Bovine TB Discovery. This story was originally reported by the Indiana Journal-Gazette. Indiana officials say they plan to collect samples from as many as 1,100 deer in response to the discovery of bovine tuberculosis in the wild in the state for the first time. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources said Wednesday that it has created a bovine tuberculosis management zone in three east-central counties where it will collect samples. The emphasis will be on bucks two years old and older. The disease was recently found in wild white-tailed deer at a Franklin County cattle farm. The department will meet its goal by requiring mandatory check-in of hunter-harvested deer from September 24th to 25th and November 4th through 27th. There also will be voluntary sampled submissions from October 1st to November 3rd and December 3rd to 11th. Officials say if hunter participation is low, they will remove deer from the surveillance area early next year. For additional details on this story, please check our show notes. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. If you have any ideas for future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Thanks to Jim Keller with
0: the Deer News. And without further ado, here is Michael Waddell. Michael Waddell, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. What's happening, my friend?
1: Doing good, buddy. We're closing in. We are closing in. It's almost the season. <laughs>
0: yeah, it is. It's right around that corner. In
1: somewhere. Probably is <laughs> Well,
0: yeah, you know, I found that we had this interesting fact that we had somebody submit a, a buck from California uh, back in July. And. It was a blacktail, and it was a beautiful and velvet buck. And I'm like, oh, man. And, and we're used to it's resubmitting or reposting bucks that are submitted to us. It's like, do I have an illegal kill here? I can't post this on the Facebook page. Well, <laughs> come to find out, there is a zone that starts for blacktail. There's one zone that starts in July. And I was like, that's got to wow. be the earliest season out there, if I'm not mistaken.
1: It's, it's got to be, because the only one I would think when it comes to deer hunting would probably be south carolina i think they come in in august but uh holy cow man even now here in georgia it's so hot and, and all through the south i mean i'm so ready to go deer hunting but it's right now you'd have to almost hunt in your fruit of looms to even right you know be able to withstand the heat
4: right flip flops you ever sometimes. hunt in your fruit of looms What uh
1: not not legally not legally <laughs> 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 I, 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 no, i've learned that most of the time if a grown man's running around in his fruit of the looms it usually ain't up to no he ain't up to no good so i, I, I but I, i've seen times where it would be more comfortable based on the weather conditions to get out of the scent lock and hunting the fruit of the looms right. because uh it gets
0: hot <laughs> uh, do, do you actually have fruit of the looms that, that you could hunt in if you actually wanted to
4: i, I,
1: I to... guess you could yeah. I, I guess you could technically you know you can get those those colored ones you can get them in different color, colors i'm sure you can get them in camouflage and you remember it was larry the cable guy said he wasn't for them uh color through the loans he said because
0: you can't tell when they're the dirty <laughs> <laughs> oh, Larry the cable guy he's a classic absolutely that's so funny Uh-oh. oh man oh, sure so you're we've been we've been wanting to have you on the show for quite a while we have interviewed your counterparts uh anywhere from Nick Munt to t-bone to your your nemesis Michael Pitts and he <laughs> We, uh, so we've learned a lot about you and we thought, you know what, it's time. It's time to have the man on himself and see what he has to say about everybody and everything that's going on out in the the hunting world.
1: That is awesome. All those guys I like. Matter of fact, I saw that, uh, the one with Pitts and heard the one with Michael Pitts on, man, it was, I laughed so hard, man. He's one of my favorite people. Matter of fact, I retweeted that one, you know, he was giving the sound about basically I was a student of his all those years. Yes. (laughs) uh,
0: (laughs) A student in his hunting dojo. Right,
1: (laughs) that's right. In his
2: dojo, that's right.
0: (laughs) He cracked us up. He's a good guy. I mean, that's definitely you know a character that you guys created for him. He plays it so well, but even behind that, he is a he's a quality human being, or at least it seems so. You you know him personally.
1: He really is. Matter of fact, I was over there just last night before last, actually, Um, Mm -hmm. the first night that I was going to be on the show, and actually, uh, I was coming back from Pitt's place. I took all my kids over there. And I had my nine-year-old, my two nine-year-old twins, and my eleven-year-old, and I got them readjusted and got them set up with their bows. And so, uh, Pitts was kind of teaching them a little technique. So, so I literally was in Pitt's dojo. If you hadn't heard <laughs> literally, of that, but I was literally in Michael Pitt's dojo. That's wow, right.
0: that's that's pretty good, man. That's uh, <laughs> that's hardcore stuff over there. I don't know if I can make it through a a day at the dojo, but you guys, you guys get it done. <laughs> <laughs> for uh, sure so tell us a little bit about your yourself michael we we see you on tv and um you, you've got a great reputation you're you seem to be everywhere uh very very popular to have a lot of you know, your sponsors behind you um but let's go back a ways let's go back in time a little bit and tell us kind of what you about your origins where you're from and, and how you kind of developed into who you are today
1: well first of all i mean i certainly have been blessed but um it's cool because I would have never in a million years thought that I would have the opportunity to, to do what I do for really for a living, but just work in the space. I mean, I grew up in an area called Booger Bottom, Georgia, which is kind of in between Woodbury and Warm Springs, Georgia. Everybody hunted and fished. I mean, if you didn't hunt and fish, you were a weirdo. I mean, it's like, right. you know, in today's world, it's like hunting sometimes can get politically incorrect. You were, very weird and strange if you didn't hunt i mean like if you if you was in the neighborhood and he's like man that dude don't hunt or fish i mean you definitely had the neighborhood crime watch looking after that dude because something was wrong you know so you know just growing up hunting and fishing with a dad who always took me on uncle morgan and uh i mean i just grew up a regular old country as a chicken coop rural georgia kid who hunted who, who had a chance to hunt everything i had a chance in, their, in the mid 80s to see the national wild turkey federation kind of go to work and put more turkeys back in my area and right away i fell in love with turkey hunting um i actually you know just like a lot of kids started off squirrel rabbit you know we even had a few quail around the area and then that led to deer hunting to turkey hunting and just really just turned into a passion and uh and, you know and just one thing led to another and 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 my dad he was always a, a contractor so I spent every summer working, you know, with him on the job from everything from hanging sheetrock to running a bull float out there on some concrete to uh to literally just, you know, helping trim in a house to, to dry in a house. So you know, I learned what hard work was early and I also learned if you worked hard you got a chance to play hard. And us, you know, out there where I'm from, playing hard meant you had a place to hunt and you went and hung out and you had a four wheel drive truck that you could ride your little lady around in and get stuck and then get your buddy to come pull you out and maybe reverse that same thing the next weekend. So just really just grew up just like a lot of kids in the, in the country who uh, just had a tight, you know, knit group of friends who liked to hunt and fish and hang out and just kind of all American kind of kid for the most part.
0: Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. It's, I mean, I grew up in a similar spot where if you weren't hunting and fishing, you're kind of a oddball. And, you know, if you, if you didn't get out in the woods, the, you kind of looked. They looked. You were outcast in a sense. So I, I can relate to that. It makes sense to me. If I wasn't uh, hunting or, or knee deep in some brook somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, then then I wasn't at home. I didn't feel comfortable. Uh, the, the further out in the the swamp I could get, the better off I felt about myself. Just kind of that way. I don't, no doubt,
1: yeah. and, and no doubt, and you guys might have grew up like this too. Um, and it's funny, I have an opportunity to do this with my kids, but literally. I remember being 10, 11 years old, and this will just, you know, people who's listening who grew up like like this, it's not alarming or even weird, but I remember 10 or 11 years old, and of course in the South, we have a very liberal, you know, rules when it comes to getting youth involved in the outdoors, but even back then, I don't think this was necessarily what you should do, but I literally remember getting a twenty-two long rifle, or a little 20-gauge shotgun, or or four ten when I was 10, 11 years old, and just taken out, out of the house, my mama... Telling me to be safe and come back at dark and just hunting squirrel, rabbit, just walking around shooting right. at stuff and uh, and literally just had the best time doing it. I mean, nothing was safe, you know. And obviously, I was taught if you shot it, you gotta you gotta eat it. And and just coming home and just had a blast out there. The, and the only thing that was a problem was running out of ammo. And just had a good time. Never come close to having a hunting accident. Just had a blast. Literally, that was my video game. Just get lost in the outside. And, and come back and eat a good meal that your mama made. I
0: mean,
1: that right. was that was such a regular occurrence.
0: Right? Yeah, I there was. It was not even a question in in my parents' mind if I grabbed my BMX bike and I drove or rode five miles to my friend Greg's house. We'd grab a twenty two and our fishing poles, and we would literally in dungarees and work boots and t shirts. And we're not talking and, and nothing to do with Orvis or any, we didn't even have waders, but we literally right. wade, wade out to in the, the slow moving brook up to our necks and just fish for trout all day. And we only brought the 22 just in case we saw something we felt like shooting at. And that was a day. Yeah, and, I, and, and I'd show. And it's
1: like, what were you going to shoot? Whatever. I don't know. Just it could be something that just seemed like it needs shooting at.
0: Right. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe we'd miss. Maybe it was just a tin can. Maybe it was a, a piece of wood. It, Mate, it could have be been anything. Can give me a lot of yeah. Yeah. Yep. But, and it, you would, I, I'd leave in the morning. I'd come home right around dusk, maybe. And it, if I wasn't home, they didn't care. And they did. Well, I think they cared. I take that back. But I don't think they minded. They're just like, yep, all right, good. He's home, and we're all set. And that was it. It's
1: funny. And and, uh, alarming, as that might would sound, to some people in modern-day society, I personally think that that's what's being lost in the youth and the generation now is is that opportunity. Because, obviously, I was kind of in that era to where video games did come around. I'm 43, so... Obviously, I remember seeing the Ataris come. I remember seeing the television and things like that. Obviously, we didn't have iPhones and things to do like that, but that was entertainment. We had so much fun. You mentioned the BMX bike. I mean, I remember just getting a wrench and, and, and working on a bike and getting that gun, going to build downs in the creeks, and just anything we could do. We spent so much time outside, and we felt like big men, man. We we would have a chance to shoot a squirrel and, and eat it and Beg our moms to help cook it for us or whatever it might be, and we had so much fun, and it would be from the time we got up to the time the dinner bell rang and it was time to go to bed, and we just repeated, and so much fun, and and so much of the younger generation, they do not have the same opportunities, or it's frowned upon, and we don't allow that to happen, and I think it's a sad thing.
0: Right. Yeah. And I'd never got in trouble for disappearing like that. The only time I ever got in trouble was when, and this was before I was aware of any kind of conservation efforts. We, we brought home way too many trout. We ate them all, but my grandfather tore into me about how you know, <laughs> there, were, there are laws and rules and you, you need to understand that. And he, t- he, he would not let me leave before I absolutely had a better understanding of why catching 14 trout was a bad idea for one day. So, and it's, you know, I never do that today, but back then I I didn't think anything of it, but you know, there, that was the only time I ever got in trouble. Other than that, it was free roam.
1: That's, that's so cool. And you, you learn from a young age, I've always said, sometimes it's uh it's hard to be good at something, having a passion for something, unless you kind of, you know, read the, you know, kind of rode the ragged edge of of doing something wrong in it too. And I was the same way. I mean, I'll be honest with you growing up in Georgia, I didn't know there was such thing as a squirrel season until my papa told me. And my and my dad like, boy, you can't be shooting that squirrel. It's July, and I, like, what do you mean? What's the difference in July and September? It's like, well, there's a season in September, not in July. But then again, then you started learning. So again, catching a couple too many trout or shooting a squirrel in July led to the opportunity to learn a valuable lesson. That's a heck of a lot less to get in trouble with than going out and hanging out on the street corner, playing a video game, maybe doing a little bit of crystal meth, and then you're hooked and you screwed up the rest of your life. You know, most game warden who sees a little young country kid out there just wanting to hunt and fish, he's going to teach them a lesson and, and, and help them learn what what's right and wrong. And so, uh, like I said, I'm not trying to minimize that when we were kids, but then again, you're right. If that's the least thing these kids can get in trouble doing these days, then I would pray that all my kids, that'll be the wrong they get
0: into. Right. I completely agree. So when you were a kid, this was kind of a a normal lifestyle for you, just being outside. And so at that point, I mean, you never expected that you'd be on television and be a popular television outdoor celebrity, I would imagine. Was that the furthest thing from your mind back then?
1: The furthest thing. I never in a million years. I mean, it's like even when I started working uh, with Bill Jordan at Realtree Camouflage, I never thought that I would be on TV or have a chance to host a television show. I, I knew that there were VHS takes out there. Even when I was young, I remember watching people. Um, some of the first takes I remember seeing was actually takes like Roger Raglin. I remember seeing uh, even Noel Feather. Y'all might remember. I remember Noel Feather. and hmm. Just just little videos. And then also uh, Will Primos had some stuff out there. There was a couple of different people, but I never thought that. I didn't even know there was a livelihood you could to be made around television and video work in the hunting industry. So, no, never in a million years. I just realized as I started getting into high school that I become obsessed with it, just turkey calling and, and, and realizing that I just wanted to be better at it. You know, I wanted right. to be better at understanding how to be successful in killing a turkey or get my limb in a deer or then, then the archery bug bit me. And, and so, no, I never, I never even had a goal of being on television.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and it did. I can't imagine most people would. But it's interesting how it developed. Where did you, when did you get your opportunity?
1: Well, I got my first big opportunity in, in the when I was in high school, I guess about my sophomore and junior year. I got obsessed with turkey hunting. I mean, to the point to where all my heroes were not sports athletes. They were all people like Paul Butsky, Dick Kirby, you know, Nightingale, those guys. Right. Um I remember really looking up to Ray I and uh Denny Gul- Gulvis there were so many different turkey callers that that i thought hung the moon from um preston Pittman, you name it and um walter parent and so i really just identified with those guys because they i just really looked up to them how good they could turkey call and i tried to mimic those sounds and mimic the wild turkey and i started calling a lot of contests and i met up with a guy named dale rom of rom brothers game calls and he has been one of my mentors from from day one And, and he gave me some of my first turkey calls and he said look I'll give you all the turkey calls you want if you'll use these in competition. I'd never called in a contest. He had just heard of me and seen me one day. And um, and that kind of pushed me over the limit to say, well, this guy's giving me free turkey calls. I need to compete. Well, immediately I started doing really well. and placing at the state level, started competing at the national level, started doing good, and I won a couple of really big contests. And the first really big contest I won was called the Realtree Grand America down in Perry, Georgia. I won a $1,000, man. I was on top of the world, son. I was like, 18, 19 years old. And um, and that's where I started um, meeting a lot of people at Realtree. And Bill Jordan offered me basically a, what he called an advisory staff, where he gave me free camouflage. And pretty much that was it. That's all that came with it. So at this point, you know, in, in the uh, early 90s, I had free camouflage and free turkey calls. And I didn't think a kid from Booger Bottom needed anything more than that. I mean, that's like, Keeping up with the Kardashians, I had I had kept up with anybody and everybody, just getting that, you know. So I was right, like right. rich and famous, I thought at that point, and so that led to having an opportunity to guide and uh, take some people hunting with Real Tree, and they they would pay me a hundred dollars a day to guide, and I couldn't believe that, and I was getting a chance to take people like Dale Earnhardt, who I couldn't believe I was even meeting, much less taking them turkey hunting. I <laughs> met uh, a lady named Larley Dovey who was an outdoor rider who just kind of also took me under her wing and was telling me what I should do and, and kind of helped me understand that there really was a true hunting industry that you can make a living in it. And about the same time I was going to Heaton and Mayor school, you know, the technical school, and I just really thought I was going to kind of sign back on and help and work, work with my dad and contracting and build and remodel houses and just, you know, live a small, simple, you know, down home life. And, uh, and literally, Around that same time, all this was happening, David Blanton had uh, asked me if I thought I could run a camera, and it just so happened me and a good friend of mine named Shane Cogger over at Big Buck Trading Post. I was working part-time as an archery tech over at this uh, archery store, and uh, he and I had happened to video a bunch of our own stuff on VHS, and I showed him some of the footage, David Blanton. And he said, dude, just run a camera. He said, I'll pay you to, you know, not just guide, I'll pay you to run a camera. So I started kind of working as a freelance camera guy. One thing to to another. And at the end of that year, he offered me a full-time job, making wow. a big whopping eight, $18,000 a year. And once again, free turkey calls and free camouflage. So, man, I had hit the big time. And so uh, yeah. just kind of one thing led to the another, another. And with the growth of the industry, Outdoor Channel came along. And one thing I really respected about Bill Jordan and Realtree and David Blanton they always pushed me to be creative. Like they would say, what do you think, Michael? You know, what do you think about our videos? What do you think about All-Stars of Spring? What do you think about Monster Bucks? So I'd give them all these ideas. But, you know, being a young kid, you didn't really think that they would take your advice. And so I'd say, man, what about we do this, this, and this? And so they're like, let's do it, Michael. Let's do it. And so I remember as we were fighting that battle when TNN became Spike TV and then we were trying to switch Realtree Outdoors over to ESPN2 at the time, we started, and for the first time, I realized that there was kind of this political battle of nationally representing hunting to a non-edemic, or, in other words, everybody didn't live in this bubble of hunting and fishing and, you know, this campfire talk that we're talking now, that there was a world that was kind of against us, and it was politically, in a lot of cases, incorrect for hunting shows to be aired at a national level. Right. And so that's when, about that time, Outdoor Channel come on the mark, and I remember I had this idea of this TV show which turned out to be, um, real tree road trips. And so, and so I remember pitching David the show and, uh, um, I remember pitching David Blanton the show and, uh, and he said, man, I love the concept of the show. And I said, well, I don't know who we get to host it. I just think it'd be a good show for this outdoor channel, this new right. network. Yep. So with that said, he said, well, why don't you host it? And I'm like, no, David, I wasn't pitching it for me to host it. I was just saying, he said, he Michael, you'd be the perfect guy. He said, you know, you're young, you're charismatic and he, he he said some nice things about me in that little production meeting. And next thing I know I'm sitting there with real tree sales team and we're going over, um, a production schedule. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm on, you know, we didn't talk about raising my salary or nothing. It was just, I was going to get a chance to put the camera down and and go hunting and I couldn't believe it. And, uh, so the rest is kind of history. And then we started the real tree road trips and, um, and that kind of led to just, you know, opportunities for me as a, if you want to call it a hunting personality and, I've always shied away, guys. I've never liked the term professional hunter because right. we all are professional hunters. We all try to promote hunting. And and so with that, I don't sit here and claim that I'm a better hunter than anybody or anything like that. I just simply want to promote the culture of hunting, and I want people to understand how fun it is. And obviously, if you get a chance to hunt and be around the people I've had a chance to to hunt around, and, and to really those people and personalities that was a mentor to me, then I'd have to be completely ignorant to not learn so much. I learned so much and I got so much better as a hunter, as a bow hunter, as a turkey hunter, as a turkey caller. And so, so much of of what used to be hard become more natural because you was around the best of the best in the industry. I mean, how can you turkey hunt with Eddie Salter and not become a better better turkey hunter? Right. How can you spend two weeks with Chuck Adams and not understand how to be a better bow hunter? And so I was just so blessed. And it was literally, it was literally like, being in a whirlwind and almost a fantasy world, all these people I'd looked up to and admired—they literally had me under their wing and just was, you know, loving on me, teaching me things, and they showed me a lot of respect. And I and I look back and I think the one reason they respected me so much and gave me so much love, I think they saw my passion. They saw how much I loved it and how how much I truly loved hunting and the outdoors. I was truly just a a little redneck kid who couldn't believe I was in it. And so it just gave me so much gratitude. And so those guys gave me so much back, more than I could ever, you know, thank them for That's,
0: uh, that's, it's quite an opportunity and you took, not not advantage of it, but you, you, you went with the opportunity and that's, uh, that's, you're right. You couldn't have made that up. It just kind of came into your, your being. That's pretty neat.
1: Well, it, it taught me so much because, you know, even, even now with kids and I got a 16 year old son who's just eat up with bass fishing. and he loves it so much. And he's, he's into the technical aspects of it. And it's, it's funny. He reminds me of how I was about turkey hunting. And I mm. said, you know, Mason, take it. And, and he's been lucky that through some of the, you know, anglers I've met through hunting, I was like, man, talk to these guys and, and use every bit of knowledge they got, the good and bad. And if you really want it, when a door opens, you got to make sure when it's cracked, go on through it. It's, there's no right. shame in going on through a door that opens, and but you got to work for it, and you got to make sure that you pick up the trash when you get through that door, and then you get to another door, and you might have to, you might have to, you know, grind and sweat to get through that next door, but keep going through those doors, and you will get there. And it's such a cool American story. I mean, when you can make a living based on a couple turkey calling championships. That is proof that the American dream is still here, and it proves why the election this year is so important. Because in America, you can take a passion, just something you truly love, and you can not only make a living, you can make a great living in it. Because you're still rewarded with hard work and passion in this country, and and it sometimes gets overlooked.
0: I completely agree. I agree. It's it's. I don't think people realize that you can do it, and it just takes... Hard work and effort and you have to stay with it and I give up and it's persistence. But you're completely correct in state in stating that. You gotta have the drive. You definitely need to have the drive.
1: Sometimes people think they wanna do something, but a lot of times what they really want, they want the money and the fame. They they want that within a week or two of getting out there and doing it. And so what you realize is 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 and it's so cool to talk about it, even my career because You know, I've been in this space now for 23 years, and that'll show you that, man, ever since I was 19, 20 years old, I've been working in it. And if you keep up with, say, bone collector road trips, literally in the last four or five years, I've really started to make some money. Um, So a lot of times you see somebody on TV or you see the the show or you see a hunting personality or hear somebody on radio, you think, dude, they're making a killing, man. They're in the hunting industry. They're freaking raking it in and... You know, I'm having to pay for this and that, and this rich guy, he ain't no better hunter than I am. Man, I, I, you know, I don't consider myself rich. I consider myself rich by the standard that I get to do what I love for a living. But for 20-something years, I worked in this to, to keep the light bill on and to do what I love. And and luckily, by the grace of God, Bone Collector has given me an opportunity to give us some financial freedom. And, and I don't take it for granted, and anybody that buys a Bone Collector product, man, I love them, man. I'll hug their neck and I thank them because there's so many things they can spend their hard-earned dollars on. And when they buy something that we help create, that, that we help to hopefully, you know, generate jobs in America with through a through something as small as a hunting brand, it means something to me. And so, uh, but with that said, it took a long time to get there. There was a lot of years. I worked a long time at Realtree down there running a camera at eighteen to $22,000 a year, you know, eating, eating buying a sausage. Uh, and so, uh, you know. So so, it, it sometimes you got to be patient. Like I said, you got to keep working and keep grinding.
0: Yeah, you got to pay your dues along the way, and then stay where that's it. Right. Eventually, it comes. But it, it's, it's not a cakewalk. You know, you got to you got to put it all all together. So let's. That's wh- right. When did Bone Collector come into the picture? When did you transition out of real tree real tree road trips into the Bone Collector? That that's
1: a really cool story, and 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 it's funny because I remember that was about that same time as when all the. Uh, The forums and different social media was starting to come on so people could talk, and there's a lot of misconceptions. A lot of people thought I left Realtree, but what happened was is with Realtree Road Trips, we weren't expecting that to be as big a success as it was. And so when that happened, I was a full-time employee at Realtree, just making a salary. One of my responsibilities was to host 13 episodes of Realtree Road Trips. And I had a plethora of other responsibilities at Realtree. And so, obviously, in any big company or corporation, there's policies and parameters. Well, with that, there was nothing I could do extracurricular. So I couldn't have any other side work. And my focus was to work for Realtree and and, and stuff like that. And so when I started having these opportunities for endorsements, when people would call me and say, hey, Michael, we'll pay you X amount of dollars, to come do seminars at our hunting show, I technically couldn't take that money right. uh, because that was against Realtree's policy. And sure, couldn't take money if I had say, a Muzzy Broadheads or a Hoyt Bow that said, Michael, we'll pay you this, but we want to use you for the catalog. So, in essence, I was kind of property of Realtree. And so, Bill Jordan, um, as we got to talking, he said, Michael, you got a lot of opportunity right here. He said, I hope you'll always be re- you know, loyal to Realtree. He said, but you need to leave Realtree. And I, and I talked to him about that. And I said, well, Bill, and I talked to David Blanton about it a lot, and we talked about a lot of different things that could happen. And he said, but I'm scared if I change it and give you the one-off opportunity to do these things, it's Going to cause me problems with the company and, and managing this whole company because what's good for you has got to be good for everybody. So, basically, after a lot of discussion and prayer, to be honest, you know, I left Realtree as a full time employee and went out on my own. And, uh, and really at that particular time, I didn't leave to start Bone Collector, I left to be able to take advantage of endorsements to design a gun with, say, Thompson Center or to work closer with Hoyt or to work closer with. G five broadheads or Bushnell, and so and so therefore, I was going to be also getting a check from those guys to do appearances to to go to work. No different than Michael Jordan worked for Nike, right. and so through that process, Bill signed me back on as a subcontractor to continue on hosting road trips. And so as as I kind of got out there on the road, I remember one of the first projects I had. Uh, I was sitting on the gun range with Greg Ritz, and we he's working at Thompson Center. He was a VP of marketing at the time. He wanted to do a kind of a Michael Waddell edition muzzleloader and I was like man I don't know man I don't know if I want to do a Michael Waddell edition that sounds kind of I don't know is that too egotistical to have a (laughs) gun named after you and I was just you know I was always taught to be humble and I was just kind of insecure about it and so I told Greg or Greg maybe told me he said maybe we call it something cool he said you're always coming up with a one-liner or something he said maybe we call it something neat and we let that be your gun and maybe other personalities would want to shoot it and get behind it and so we've been in the factory all day kind of looking at barrels and and they had just started working on this triumph frame and so we looked at that and i was out shooting that gun on the range with greg and i shoot this gun and it's shooting so good we had a bunch of different product out there this one particular model was shooting really good and i said this is the gun i want this is the perfect gun it's the price point it's everything i said i don't know what we call it but it's going to be a bone collector And um, when I said that, like I looked at Greg and was like, holy cow, let's let's let it be the Bone Collector, the Thompson Center Bone Collector. And so literally we kind of put that away and said, Okay, let's let's start looking into that. And I got on the airplane going home from um, New Hampshire. And I remember thinking, dude, that could be a really good show. That could be really cool. And so I called Greg Ritz when I landed and I said, Greg, if you don't mind, man, I'd like to do more of this Bone Collector thing. And he said, you go at it. And so ended up, I I got to thinking and called Nick and T-Bone and had the concept and literally took. Money that I had saved up for personal endorsements, and we started trademarking the Bone Collector brand and kind of launched a whole other business.
0: Gotcha, that's that's fantastic. So, N- Nick and T Bone were part of your group at that point.
1: They were just good friends. They okay. were kind of in the real tree family. Nick Nick had been a guide out in Wyoming. I, I really struck off a good you know friendship with Nick, uh, hunting with him out in Wyoming. Just you know, same age, just funny as all get out. Good hunter. T Bone was kind of an archery guru. Won the 91, worth the world championship of archery. So he was just a, I think it was the ASA he won. He was such a, an amazing archer and a good funny guy. And we were already using T Bone as a creative kind of counsel with some stuff we were doing with Foxworthy. And he was obviously a, a big guy, you know, and uh, a big old jolly fun guy. And so with that said, we had so much cooking. So I thought they would be the first perfect personalities to to help me with the load if we got this bone collector off the ground. And so uh, I'd already knew him and they were kind of out there and nobody was really utilizing them as personalities and just, you know, and I wasn't looking for them to be a pro. I was looking them to be truly a personality. And that's kind of what they turned out to be. Just really funny guys and fun guys, great hunters, but at the same time, the kind of guy you'd want to hang out. If you knew they were in camp, you'd like, holy cow, I'm pumped, man. T-Bone's going to be in hunting camp with me. And so that, that's what I was trying to create.
0: Gotcha. So you did some work with Jeff Foxworthy oh, several years ago, correct?
1: Correct. Trick gotcha. And Jeff still lives in the area and every once in a while we, we have a chance to chat and uh, we were doing a, a video with Realtree called The Incomplete Deer Hunter. Yeah. And uh, it was a comedy video. It was Jeff's kind of idea. Realtree ended up producing it. And so uh, I was kind of behind the scenes as a producer and we had a chance to do a bunch of fun stuff with him. And that was when I first had a chance to work, I guess, professionally with T-Bone um, in production and, you know, work with him a little bit as a personality. And that's actually, his name is Travis Turner. That's where his name t-bone came about was actually during that incomplete deer hunter deal
0: ah okay that makes sense so uh, did uh, did that help project your career or propel your, your career further working with Foxworthy
1: you know it's funny not as much you know it wasn't like Jeff made a bunch of calls and said hey man there's this young kid from Booger Bottom who's pretty funny or pretty cool you need to look into him I think just being around Jeff and other personalities and other successful people definitely helped project it because I started learning you know, what those guys were. And I think the thing I learned the most, even in somebody like Dale Earnhardt, Foxworthy, the one thing I realized, they were always very gracious and they were always very humble. Mm. And in some cases, those guys were so talented, they deserved to have an ego. <laughs> you right. know, because they were good. I heard Charles Barkley say one time, he said, you know, in a, in a, when they was playing with the Dream Team, they said, you know, hey, how's the eyes of egos? He said egos are pretty big. He said, but we all here deserve to have an ego.
2: <laughs> right,
1: right. But, but, but these guys never had an ego they were just really good at a certain huh. thing they did but outside of that man they were just regular guys and i started paying attention maybe outside of the rap industry it seems like most of the people who make it the feathers they don't have an ego they're really good at something and they know they are they're very confident but there's a fine line between being arrogant ego driven and confident and so being around those guys helped me understand the difference in being arrogant and being confident and if I'm gonna sign up to do something, I wanna confidently tell those people around me that we're gonna get it done, man. We're gonna have fun, we're gonna do it, but we're gonna do it as a team, we're gonna do it together, and, and that's that's one thing that's helped me a lot.
0: That's awesome. It's it's good to hear it's uh you know, staying humble is a good good place to be and you're right. There are some people that I guess deserve an ego, but I love it when you don't. I think that's just the way to live your life most most important. Absolutely. So let's, let's transition a little bit out of, uh, the, the history of bone collector and let's talk about some deer hunting and some strategies. I'm going to turn the mic over to Dusty here. I'd like to talk about some early season tactics and what you guys think about, uh, this time of year.
4: Let's, let's start out with, uh,
0: what are you doing right now today to
4: prep for the season to come here in a few weeks?
1: Right now, right around here in Georgia, our season comes in the earliest it's ever have like September 10th. Um right now and we just got made it legal in the last two years you can legally bait in georgia you've always been able to bait prior to the season but it had to dry before that so literally all kind of summer i've been getting an inventory and and things have changed so much with trail cameras and now even the technical advantages they've you know advancements they got now and the trail cameras would send them to your phone and these bushnell trail cams that send them right to my my smartphone so you can kind of monitor and inventory bucks all year long. And so right now I'm literally been bush hogging a few trails and kind of getting a line of a strategy. I got a pretty good inventory and, and just putting stands in place and getting ready because obviously uh, early season is these bucks on this late you know summer food pattern. It, that, that first two or three days that you hunt them, man, it can be just deadly on them. And, and so um, I think almost right now for early season, not just here at home but also the places we know we're going early especially for whitetail is just really getting ready to to make that strategic attack and i almost think you got to get all the intel you can especially the summer months and leading up to the season to be ready just like a navy seal to come in and strike quick and strike fast to hunt smart rather than hard especially early season if you'll hunt smart I found early season, you can be a lot more successful, especially if you can afford some of the technical advancements in trail cameras, where you understand what the deer are doing right there. You know, I think right now, kind of looking into the early season, especially when it comes to whitetail, we're just kind of really taking all the intel. And now that really, I think so much has changed in the way we all hunt. And it seems like I never thought I'd see the day that it seems that you're saving your money up to see how many cameras you can get in your arsenal for trail cameras. And now you even got the, uh, the wireless cameras that send them right to your smartphone that is amazing so so now you know right now i just been kind of bush hogging trails we're luck luckily here in georgia we can legally bait all times of the year now at least in the southern zone of the georgia I hunt we got some some phenomenal bucks so i got a really good inventory of all the places we can hunt and of course i've got kids i got a wife that loves to hunt and so Oh, Daddy been doing all the work, and so they now trying to eavesdrop and see what kind of bucks I got and where, where I'm going to set them. You know, open the day. So it's it's kind of fun to do all that. But now, when it comes to uh, to hunting, it, these cameras have showed us that you can hunt smart is more effective. I think, especially on whitetail, than hunting hard. And um, I never thought I would have seen that happen because these cameras can tell you when these deer start really hitting the food sources, start doing certain things. And then when the timing's right, you can slide in there and that first couple of days you hunt a area based on the intel. I mean, it's almost like being a navy SEAL man. You got all the information, come in there and be ready and you can almost watch your clock and six thirty, seven o'clock, if that's regular when they've been hitting a food source or food plot, maybe early season uh, soft mass, you know, tree situation, whether it be persimmon or fruit tree you can come in there and kind of cook your cornbread, man. So it, it's pretty cool. So I would say the advancement of technology and these trail cameras have changed a lot in the way I prepare.
4: Gotcha. Do you keep any kind of record of year-to-year of what bucks and where at and what you're after for the new season?
1: You know, I've been blessed to do that. It's funny, I'm kind of stuck in between old school and new school. You know, one thing I've always... Kind of not liked about the hunting industry, how everybody nicknames their buck, and we kind of get into this, well, he's only five. He's only, let's give him the six and a half, or we're not going to shoot a four and a half. I've always said, man, I raise kids and I shoot deer. You know, I've always said that. But I've been very blessed to have a few places that I can come back to and hunt regularly. So it's definitely changed my mindset that, yes, I do keep an inventory, and I kind of got it cataloged as far as the deer that I've seen the last several years, some that I know are up-and-comers and some that I know that got by that are still there. So it's actually exciting to kind of go back and look at the years past of trail cam pictures on a hard drive or on the computer and say, man, this buck's back. And it becomes almost as fun as actually hunting the buck itself, just knowing that you got them back. It's it's almost like a a mysterious stranger that you know.
4: Is there any particular methods that you're using to bring bucks back in early season?
1: I've had really good luck uh, with uh i've been using that big big and j that bb squared and i'm telling you i've, I've used it all from corn to every product out there i've had so much luck with that. that that aroma on that is so good and there's something about early season that they just love it and everywhere across the country i've had really good luck kind of getting good inventory of what bucks are there and you can buy it in a little brown bag and what i like about it because you can put it out in the first couple of days you got it out man it seems to just really the buck seem to really pound it i don't know if it's and and i think after doing a little research and talking to jeremy and some of the guys up there i think what helps too it's it's actually a but it was built to be originally a protein-based feed to help grow antlers but they realized that the market was way bigger for an attractant and not everybody was trying to year round trying to grow big bucks and so uh they turned it into an attractive versus a protein supplement so i think something about that early season you know that early summer months and to late summer those years just really pound it and i've had really good luck with the big and J.
4: good deal yeah just curious to see if there's any techniques or methods that we need to be using as hunters ourselves to draw on them bigger bucks what about tree stands are, are you placing tree stands or is that already done
1: no, they, believe it or not i i kind of i'm more last minute on that because i'm i'm really big time a uh a lock-on tree stand hunter and so i've got some spots that that i go hang that i know is traditionally going to be a good spot whether it be around a white oak aiken ridge or maybe it's a food plot that i know i'm going to plant and i know it's going to be a good you know northwest setup and i'll have a couple south wind setups but for the most part i will kind of come in strategically and hang that last minute sometimes and, and sometimes i think you can over jump getting too many setups too quick and so i'll kind of leave my inventory stands to where when I really hone in, I will slide in there kind of really as slick as I can and try to hang those stands even closer to the hunting uh, season gets there. That way I can kind of be more agile when it comes to what the wind direction is and where exactly I want them um, based on what the deer do it. And, and in some situations, I will go ahead. Like I hung a stand last week, uh, but I know I'm going to have a food plot there, and I know it, I know it's going to be a northwest wind set up you know, as the season kind of draws in October, November.
4: Gotcha. What What do you do about out-of-state hunts as far as tree stands? Do you carry tree stands with you, or are they already there? Or ship them to them? How do you do that?
1: A little of both. Uh, that's one thing that's kind of fun that is also a challenge. We do a lot of out-of-state hunting, and we do a lot of hunting with friends who allow us to hunt. Like, I was just talking to Jeff Danker. He's going to be, uh, be somebody I look up to, just a really good guy, and uh, he's invited me to come hunt his Oklahoma place. And the good thing about that, I'll be honest, I know nothing about his place but i don't have to because jeff has invited me and i'm gonna be hunting the stand that jeff danker hung and then as we get there we'll tweak the stands and you know if i see something happening then jeff will be the first to say yeah we need to move over there 200 yards or whatever but for the most part when you hunt a place like that where whether it be hunting with you guys or hunting with a friend then they've done the homework and vice versa i have a lot of different hunting personalities that have come hunt with me and friends that they're hunting my sets based on what i know so it's almost a lot of sharing your resources and then in some cases if it's a certain uh, situation or leased property or a place that we get a chance to hunt, we might go ahead and send some stands in in advance, and then when we get there, we'll we'll kind of start and you know what typically is a five day hunt, we might turn it into an eight day hunt to where the first couple of days we're really kind of taking inventory and we're learning the property ourselves. So. There's a lot of different ways we go about it, but I've had almost everything happen from those long, drawn-out hunts where you find success to where you know nothing about the place but it just it kind of becomes a do-it-yourself. Then I've had hunts where it might be a situation like you guys invite me up, and I don't know anything. I show up with a Hoyt boat and a sharp broadhead and some camouflage, and y'all say, go down here. You know, you'll see some cat eyes. It's called the boat seat stand. Get up there. It should be good for northwest wind. By the way, I've been seeing a pretty good 10 point on trail cameras. And literally crack daylight, and look, here comes a 10-pointer in, and I shoot him, and I know nothing about it. And you know what? And all I am is I'm coming back to camp with a bunch of hugs with whoever put me on that spot. You know, so it's a little bit of, a, a little bit of everything. All
4: right, right. Yeah, that makes sense, though. Well, I
1: was going to say, and that's what I really love about it, because you you see so many different areas, and and what works in Georgia, you know, you might get up in y'all's country, and I might be hunting as a guest, y'all, and what really works for me here might not work as good there, and what works for all of us there might not work in northeast Montana or Wyoming, and I, I love the challenge, and then Obviously, we'll go, we'll spend, I drew a Nevada elk tag this year. I've been putting in for 20 years for this tag. I drew a Nevada elk tag. I drew a Unit 16A um, archery elk tag in New Mexico. And so, you know, you, you, you're you not hunting deer, you're hunting elk. And so you've always got a lot of different challenges. And it's been fun to be faced with stuff that's in your comfort zone, but also out of your comfort zone. And so many of those animals that used to would have been, I knew nothing about, you've learned a lot about because, you know, we've been blessed enough to hunt them, so it's uh, it's funny. I've been doing it a long time, but it's never got old because the strategy always changes, always changes.
4: Yeah, that's uh, it's got to be definitely a challenge mentally, physically, and and uh, the ability to read an area and and take information from all these people that you're hunting with. Is is that a huge challenge when you go somewhere and they tell you to go down there and hunt, and maybe your mental game is thinking that it needs to be set up different? Is that a challenge you run into while you're in the woods?
1: It can be because sometimes. You're only as good as what you think you know, and sometimes you can think too hard on that. And I think I've definitely come more laid back over the years of doing this because you realize that it does change, and and, and you're not going to be smarter than the guy that you're hunting in his backyard. And so getting back to the whole professional deer hunter, if you want to be good at something, you got to listen. you got to pay attention, and um, pay attention to every aspect of it. But sometimes it is, and the only time it gets really tough is – Maybe when I'm turkey hunting, if I'm if I'm probably cocky in one area, it's probably turkey hunting. So if somebody's working a turkey and I'm getting frustrated, then it might be tough for me mentally to go with the plan of of where I'm at as a visitor. Then I'm then it's tough for me to kind of stay the course, and I want to change it up. But for the most part, everybody we hunt with is is very open because they'll have something figured out. And obviously, when you find yourself hunting, and in real time, you know sometimes the, the strategy does kind of change kind of like the football coach when when they put together a plan a lot of times it will
4: change yeah that makes sense you know and you know, I, I see the struggle that could be there mentally for you you know being in a lot of situations hunting wise that you're very well educated on yep. what's going on and what what needs to happen i'm sure there's some issues there that uh, sometimes you have to overcome and go on with your own plan
1: sometimes it can be tough because of you get a chance to do it so much, so many different places with a lot of different really great hunters that it don't take much to I call it I call it GT guy talk. You you can cut through and you can tell when people are just saying something and telling you a kind of line of just stuff just to kind of make it sound good to try to impress you. And sometimes that does happen. Sometimes people get insecure and they want to overtalk a situation or overdo it. When I'm thinking, man, I don't know about this, you know. So it it just depends. And I'm sure you guys kind of experience some of that.
0: Sure. Yep. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. Do. do you do you ever transition into some like ground blind stuff? You talk a lot about being in the stands. Does a ground blind ever come into your your strategy or tactics where you're going?
1: Absolutely. I I would say more so now than ever. I mean, I have learned so much about hunting out of them ground blinds, and it's blown my mind. Matter of fact, I'm not so sure that it ain't one of the preferential ways to hunt because it allows you to stay unseen. There's disadvantages as far as what you can see, you know, uh, vision-wise, out of the blind. But yeah, I love hunting out of ground blinds. I- I've actually started leaning on them a lot more because, you know, especially hunting with kids um, and my family, it- it's it's really cool and it seems to cut down on scent really good. And you can put a ground blind anywhere. And I've learned so much over the years. A lot of times i thought that those ground blinds have to be so brushed in that they have to be invisible. But now I've learned if you allow there to get used to a ground blind, You can put it in the middle of a food plot. You can put it on the edge. You can be standing out, and you can put it anywhere, and you can find success. And so uh, there's no doubt, even from the southern states to the Midwest, man, I've had a chance to take some really good deer with a bow and arrow out of those pop-up ground blinds. Really effective way to hunt.
0: Interesting. I've been hearing a lot more about them. I have one, uh, and I haven't really attempted to hunt as much out of it as I have tree stands. And I'm up in New Hampshire. I'm in the northeast, so... My hunting style typically is uh, a stock, or if we have snow, it most most likely will be a a tracking type thing. So we're not sitting around; we're actually getting on a, a trail and and following a deer until we get a shot at it. But
1: right, the, I got you. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, but the ground blind seems to be like a, a nice answer to all of it, and especially when I have my nine year old son who's eager to go and 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 kill his first deer, and he's fidgety. Um, <laughs> you know this is a ground blind seems to be a, yeah. a a nice uh tactic for that and you know he's he's taken his first turkey now he's like all right now i want to shoot a deer it was the first thing he said after he killed his first turkey this year he said all right now i want to now i want to shoot a deer it's like okay that's so cool let's go do that now he he will twist and turn and and he's like an any nine year old boy he's going to be moving around and i can't really I guess we could get in, get him into a kind of tree stand. I haven't explored all the options, but it seems like a, a ground blind might be the nicest way to introduce him to that um, and, and not get busted.
1: They work they work extremely well, and you can put them in any situation, and, and that's one of those things, too. You don't have to really overthink it. Just put it out there. Let the deer get used to it. The first few times deer come and see the ground blind, they'll circle it, and I think it's important not to hunt the ground blind the first time that you put it out, but once those deer kind of get used to it, it becomes a bell of hay, and they don't pay any attention. It covers all movement for the most part. It helps in scent containment, and it also is a very safe factor. I mean, I send my kids all the time. I got a sixteen-year-old son. You know, he's got his license. I ain't got to worry about him falling out of a tree stand or if you, you know, uh, if you hook your safety belt up right. You can just send them hunting, and you know that it's a very safe way. And obviously, too, the kids, they're playing on phones and stuff, and so it just, even me, you know, so it covers a lot of movement. And, uh, no, it's a really effective way to hunt, and you can hunt comfortably.
0: Right, gotcha. What about scent control? What do you guys focus on when it comes to that stuff?
1: We we do wear the uh, the scent lock uh, technology or the, you know, we use carbon technology in our clothing. works really well. Um, we're starting to work with some other companies uh, that, that's coming out with some really cool scent elimination type of spray. Um, that keeps evolving um, and getting better and better. However, um, it's really tough. I think the, the toughest thing to trick is actually the uh, deer's nose. It's nearly impossible. And um, and so, but definitely, the way I look at it, in so many cases, there, there's nothing that's completely foolproof, but you know, if there is something out there that can help, it depends on how much money you want to invest into it to uh, to help you. But there is some proven technology out there in scent containment that can help you. And again, the key word is containment. It doesn't mean complete scent elimination, but anything you can do to minimize or help yourself, uh, you know, especially if it don't break the bank, I think it's crazy not to try it. And uh, and so I, I, that's that's how we look at scent containment. So we've been really pleased to you know use the scent light product. To use some other
0: things, it's helped us a lot. Gotcha, very very cool. I wanted to see if we could turn to some of the questions that we we put out a, a questionnaire out to our audience on our Facebook page, and we said, hey, we're we're interviewing Michael Waddell. We want to know what questions you'd like us to ask, so that you can listen to it on the podcast. So I'd like to move over to that a little bit and and see if we can answer some of the questions for some of our our listeners and our fans on Facebook. That's cool. maybe also. Awesome. I'm going to go with the first one. This is kind of the elephant in the room this week, I guess. This is about the, the Bomar kill of the bear with a spear and mm-hmm. Under Armour pulling away from the sponsorship because of what occurred there. What's your opinion of the situation and uh, is this something that, that you kind of encounter sometimes when you have sponsors like this? Uh, is it, do you have to be very careful about what you put on film and what, what you produce and put out there?
1: Yeah, I mean that is a hot topic um right now and I see Under Armour is definitely taking a lot of backlash in the hunting community part. And I have to agree with the hunting community. However, I can understand probably in some situations why Under Armour did what they did, which kind of proves that Under Armour is also bigger than just they're so big. They're so they're so big that it reaches worldwide that even though they've tapped into this hunting thing and I certainly appreciate Anybody who jumps into the hunting industry, I wish more big companies, whether it be Nike, Reebok, I wish more companies would jump into our space and start advertising and supporting our industry and our culture. So for that, I do appreciate Under Armour. However, what the Beaumars did was perfectly legal and it's perfectly right, and I don't think they should have been crucified. I think it is wrong that they were crucified or however the word. I don't know if crucified is a good word, but it is a perfectly legal way to hunt. Um uh, you know, what's the difference in shooting a bow and arrow in a small G5 broadhead or a spear? The bear was humanely, you know, taken out. It is what it is. And I think it's very important that the hunting community has a rally around each other. And it's a problem in our industry because so many times because of what we enjoy and how we like to hunt or what we like to hunt with or how big or how we like to go about it, Sometimes the hunting industry can create the biggest negativity within our industry cuz we don't stick together. The the crossbow hunters against the compound bow hunter, the the traditional archers against the compound hunter, the rifle hunters against the muzzleloader hunter, the bear hunters against this guy and this guy and the steel hunters against the, the dog hunter and so what happens is we create all this divide and um and therefore we're not united and we make it easy for people to dissect and pick apart us as a culture. And so I think for, what i want people to do is hunt i want a kid i don't care if he goes to the woods with nunchucks or a chinese star a spear a slingshot a 22 or a 357 magnum i want these kids hunting find it what you like what trips your trigger and get out there the good lord made these renewable resources for us to put on our table to enjoy with our family and i think it's very shallow for another man to dictate how it should be done. So for that reason, I am a hundred percent for the Bomars on this. I hate that they lost some you know, advertising opportunities and, and an endorsement with Under Armour. Under Armour has to pick and choose. They're gonna. They're. I understand why they might have done it because of the backlash. But then again, I think they would deserve any backlash they get when the hunters decide not to buy their product because they didn't truly stick with the hunter. So either right. way. Under Armour was in a tough situation. They were going to lose some business either way. Um, but I think that's why I think you can't be riding the fence. you got to be all in or all out. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the Bomars were perfectly legal. They didn't do anything. And I think uh, I think it kind of didn't show well with Under Armour when they cut them. That's just my opinion.
0: Gotcha. All right. Very good. Dustin, Dusty, what
4: do you got? Brian Livingston asks, why do we not ever see you hunting in the big woods of Maine, New Hampshire, or Vermont? Good question.
1: Because I ain't, that is a good question, because I ain't that good a hunter. I'm going to tell you right now, you better know your stuff when you get up there in Vermont and Maine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a tough (laughs) country to hunt in. Yeah,
1: see, see, I ain't no macho man. I ain't going to answer like like, like everybody else might would answer it. But, uh, you know, it's funny. That would be a great place to do a show for two different reasons. One is you never see it. And second of all, for me, not just the hunting there and what you might would take, I would love to just be in camp with a, a true traditional Vermont or Maine hunting camp. And the stories and the characters that you might see around that camp, I bet you would blow your mind. Kind of like the kind of like UPRs in Upper Peninsula. I think that's kind of an area that we don't do enough hunting in to kind of highlight the culture of it. And so, uh, you know, you, you don't see anything. You, you haven't seen any of our shows, but I don't know that I've ever seen a good deer hunting show from Maine or Vermont. It's, it's tough hunting. I mean, you you, you might works. go in there for ten days, and you might not you might not get it. You might not get a good solid. <laughs> shield. I mean, what do you? You can't you can't compare. It, you know what's easier: hunting Kansas or Iowa, or hunting Vermont or Maine. Right. I mean, guess where everybody goes? Everybody goes to the Midwest, and it's a lot easier, bigger deer, and and I think that's why you see it. I think there is a, a, a you know that that's some that right there is a good question because that calls not just me out; it calls the whole hunting industry out. We seem to gravitate to the places that have some of the bigger bucks that the hunting is a little easier.
4: Right. Yeah, It. Uh, I'll, I'll vouch for that. New Hampshire is no joke when it comes to whitetail hunting. I've been there. It's hard. It's, it's, tough. it's tough. It's tough. Uh, yeah. Man, five days of hiking, hunting, looking, searching, sniffing. It was Uh. It was definitely a, a hard hunt, and it was definitely one of the most memorable hunts I've ever been on. But I never did lay my eyes on a deer, a whitetail, the whole time I was there. Right. <laughs> Hey, they some
1: they some so called great hunters in this industry that would starved to death if they had to go hunt and eat what they had killed in Vermont or Maine on on oh, a deer right. hunt. And I, and then again, there's some people that's got it down to the science. They're every year find success and kill big deer in that country.
4: Right, right, yeah, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> it's something that you you learn different areas, and it's it's a whole new ball game when you go out to the East Coast like that. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, these guys know now. These guys, guys are like goat ridge runners hiking mountains that, <laughs> that I, I've never really been in because here in Ohio I I don't I, I don't have much of that. I'm on flat. That's right. I'm on flat ground, row crops everywhere, and ten, fifteen, twenty acre wood patches loaded full of big giant bucks, and I you know, I, I can't right. complain. I'm blessed to be here, but I, I go to New Hampshire and man, it's a whole a whole different. Hunting style. It's something that I never, you know,
0: it blew my mind. I was, right. You know, I, I was it's like, so that. Different. You're right. Dusty, you're, right. you're in as much hunting shock when you came to New Hampshire as I was when I went to Ohio to hunt. I was like, Can't believe it's this flat. I can see, you know, the, the, the fields are bigger, bigger than the largest lake and as, and as flat as the, in New Hampshire. It just it blew my mind.
4: Yeah, I was, I was like that really new kid who just put ice skates on and was out on the ice, like, slipping around and falling and tripping. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know what the heck to right. do. But, right. uh, you know, that's it, funny, that's, man. It definitely educated me. You know, something that we hear often is, why is Jay not killing a big buck every year? I tell you what, Jake kills a big <laughs> buck once every eight years. Right. He's doing something. It's because I'm. I, I have no. Uh, that's right.
0: The big bucks we hunt up here, are, they're on the three or four year plan, and uh, you know, you know, you'll you'll find them, and you just have to hunt them for four years, and you're not going to get a shot at them uh, typically inside of a thirty-six month mark. So that's the way it goes.
4: Yeah, it's gets crazy. That's I, mean, right. I tell you, it, uh, Michael, I'd like to see you go out in New Hampshire and, and get on one, and even a hundred forty. I would year. love to do it.
1: I mean, that, and that and that's what I've learned. You know, and what I do, everybody likes to shoot a big deer, but I learned that the success in a good TV show is the culture that you're highlighting in the areas you are, you know, the way you might hunt, the characters you run into. And so I think sometimes that's that's something the hunting industry gets caught up into, that you're not successful unless you kill a big high-scoring Boone and Crockett buck. That's not the case. We all dream of doing that. We all invest our money to hope that we do. But when it gets down to it, man, we just want to. We just want a campfire in a fun environment that we can enjoy a different challenge and and have fun. In some situations, it's going to turn out to be, you know, can be lucky and easy. And other times, you gruel it out in bitter cold or just logging miles and hours. And everything becomes fun if you're around the right camp and around the right people. Yeah,
4: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Could you imagine, Jay, Hillbilly Weatherman, Michael Pitts, Michael Waddell, and me and you? Holy
0: cow. That would be a... a... That would be quite a quite an adventure, and we oh, we, we may end up with more footage of just us having fun than actually shooting a deer. But that's the same. You
3: ain't way, All
0: right, so here's a question, and this this one's loaded and very funny and interesting. Elizabeth Franzino writes said she's working on three reality TV shows, and she's from California, and she says the, she wants to take you tuna fishing. And in exchange, she wants you to take her hunting. She wants to know how that sounds. She is a biologist, uh, and she holds the big-game fisherman world record for yellowfin tuna as of December thirty first, two 2010. So what do you say to that?
1: How can you turn down that, man? I've been watching that wicked tuna nearby every night It's on the house right there thinking about catching one big tuna. Right. I can always trade out a I, I'd always
0: trade out a hunting trip for a good fishing trip right there. All right. I will respond back to Elizabeth and let her know that you're in. You know, <laughs> that's great. Tuna fishing is, is a rush. I,
1: I, I've never even caught one. The only kind of tuna fish i got is got that little old fish on the can you buy it at the grocery
0: store. That's yes, yes. <laughs> <only. laughs> oh, man. it's. Uh, I have personally caught a tuna. I caught a 300-pound tuna. On light tackle, and Good. It, it, I, my arms were about to fall off after a two hour drag. And when I say drag, it was literally, literally dragging our boat all across the Atlantic Ocean. It was nuts. But
1: I can't imagine, man. I see that on that show, and I know what it's like to catch a twenty pound amberjack. I can't imagine a big old tuna. Yeah. Holy cow!
0: Three hundred pound tuna, bigger than some of the biggest deer ever, and you got to you got to manhandle it. <laughs>
1: That's nearly the equivalent of reeling in T-bone right there. There you go. You know, and I there
0: can't... you go. <laughs> all right, so I have a question about uh, somebody that let's say you're buying a, a new bow. How long does it take you to get comfortable with it? And you know, there's all amazing technologies out there, uh, but I think right now people are buying bows off the shelf. Our, our friends over at Morris's Sporting Goods, they're every time I walk in there, they're they're low on some kind of supply, and it's been more or less in the last two weeks that things are way down. But people are buying these new bows. The technology is as advanced as it has ever been. How long does it take you to get used to it, a brand new bow?
1: You know what? The turnaround now is, is really quick. And mainly um, not only are the bows better than ever, but also I think a lot of that goes to the pro shop that you set it up or the or the bow wrench, I call them, that sets that bow up for you, that understands you, that can get you set up in something that fits you. And, uh, and for me now, I've literally taken took a bow at lunch i did it this past year in ohio or two years ago in ohio brand new bow literally tying a peep site shoot it at lunch in between hunts and i went that same evening and shot a poking young buck with the same bow so i think every bow is different um it is something that we're kind of really blessed that every year when especially hoyt comes out with a new bow they will send us the new new bows for us to to test to start marketing so in some cases you know, you get something that you really like. Like, I got a bow right now. I've got the uh, this Carbon Defiant. I also have a uh, Hoyt Nitrum, and those bows, man, I love them. Holy cow, they shoot amazing. But guaranteed, come about early, late October, November, they're going to have the brand-new bow for next year, and they'll want us to immediately start shooting it. So you have to learn to kind of do it quick. T-Bone sets up our bows, and Michael Pitts sets up a lot of our bows. So the turnaround of how they set those bows up for us, we can literally be out and literally making 50-60 yard shots within a day or two at a level that we feel confident of hunting with and filling a tag with. So it's it's changed a lot.
0: Gotcha. So the learning curves on these new bows is, is pretty quick. That's it. If you're shooting in the same day, that's crazy. Gotcha. There,
1: there no doubt. If you, if you change completely a whole different cam design of a different bow design um, when it comes to the way a bow shoots from, a say, a speed cam to a uh, you know going back and forth between the kind of a more forgiving bow to a speedy bow I think it takes a little bit more learning in how to shoot it and some people and sometimes you'll get a bow that you just don't like as good as your older one so I think it depends on the bow it depends on the per- person but yeah nowadays if you get it set up right you can get really comfortable with that bow really quick if you're already used to archery you know if you're if you're a beginner it's going to take you a little bit more time to just get used to the mechanics of shooting um but but I would say now it becomes like riding a bike. You just kind of, you know, a little bit of pedaling stroke different, but you still keep it balanced the same way.
0: Okay. And this next question is along the same lines from Brianna Grewing. She wants to know: Do you hunt with a crossbow, and what kind of broadheads do you prefer?
1: I do hunt some with a crossbow, not not as much as as I probably should, because I really want to take more of a offensive approach to promoting crossbow, because I do think that's a chance we got to get more new hunters out in the woods maybe there's some people that don't feel confident with a vertical bow that we can get them bow hunting with a crossbow that's the exact opposite of what some hunters would go against um but i i have hunted a little bit of a crossbow a matter of fact i took my son years ago and uh and he shot a deer with a crossbow and loved it and just had the best best time hunting with that crossbow and um we use a lot um hawk just come out with some or killer instinct just come out with some really cool crossbows that we've been using and uh for broadheads um, I've been using the G5 product. I love that Havoc. I, lo- I, I, I think that Havoc is probably one of the best broadheads that I've shot in a long time. Super sharp, just devastating, flies like a bullet, just just amazing broadhead. It, you know, the only time I don't use that Havoc broadhead is when the state legally says I can't, which there's not many states left that says you can't.
4: All right, very good. Robert Jones asks, tips on hunting a mature six- and seven-year-old buck that likes the dark?
1: Dude, that's like, you know, trying to kill a vampire, man. They're, they're It's amazing. Um, the toughest thing in the woods, I think, to kill is a big mature buck that is nocturnal. And to be honest, and nobody really wants to say this, but the truth is, it takes some strategic luck. I mean, you learn all you can. I think the best way that I've learned now is if you've got a buck that you know is there, go ahead and invest into one of those digital wireless trail cameras that will send it to your phone. And literally monitor 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 it without having to go in there and when that buck there will always be a time he'll start making a mistake and when he starts making a mistake i mean you beg your guy you beg your employer to get you off work do whatever you can and hunt that buck right then when he starts showing up and, and and i've learned that and that's why i've had a little bit of success prior to that i'm telling you you just about got to wait for a a the neighbor's beagle to run that dog that deer by you. It's almost like it's impossible. It seems, and also I think pre-rut is about the best time when those bucks are really cruise. And so you're you're just hunting and hoping and praying for that buck to make a mistake. And a lot of times, if you really were to punch in the algebra or, or the, the the analytics of your trail cam pictures, and you look at your odds of you killing that deer it would almost make you not want to hunt because you look at all the daylight pictures versus dark pictures versus even on that, on that daylight pictures could that deer potentially have winded you before you even got to the stand site so there's so many variables it makes you help or helps you understand if you really study those trail cameras and put them into a formula it'll let you know that your percentages of seeing that deer in daylight hours are slim so when you do get a chance the, the most crucial thing i've seen in killing big deer When you see them in daylight hours, you have got to kill them. You have got to get an arrow or a bullet in them and put them in the back of your truck. You can't wait for tomorrow. So that's why I spend all my time, I'm very, very um, aggressive when it comes to shooting a lot and being very aggressive and being able to make a 50, 60-yard bow shot. A lot of people frown upon it, but these big bucks are not going to make many mistakes. And when they make the slightest mistakes you got to put the hammer on them, son. you got to close the coffin.
0: Gotcha. All right. I've got one last question from our fan base here, and then I've got 10 rapid-fire questions to get to know you just a little bit better, and we'll, we'll let you g- get on to whatever you had going on. All right. So Andy Mitchell writes, can you do your Hank Jr. impression? I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently yeah, I, a- I know what he means. So good.
1: <laughs> well, I can try. I know when uh, me and old Ernest Tubb, when I was a kid, we used to hang out down there and Minnie Pearl would come by and we'd eat some good country breakfast. And I remember Daddy calling me Bo Cephas when I was a kid. And and uh, and I can tell you right now, when it gets down to a young, lovely lady, I want one that I can enjoy a good breakfast with. And that's what I talk about. If you're going to be an icon, you've got to have a good, pretty lady you can have a good breakfast with.
3: That's <laughs> sure.
1: Now, if you, if you noticed, and, 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 and that proves if anybody's ever met Hank Jr., Hank Jr. is is, is kind of a – he's a cool cat, but he's different. So um, Hank Hank will kind of drift on you a little bit. He'll go from one thing to the next real quick on you. But I guess if you're both Cephas and you're Hank Williams' son, I'm sure that you could have the uh, privilege of saying that you can be weird from time to time.
0: <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you for answering our questions. Fan-based questions. I've got 10 rapid-fire questions for you, Michael, and we'll get through this. Uh, it's, I didn't prep you for this, so this, this is off the cuff. No problem. All right. What's your number one hunting tip of all time?
1: Be aggressive and hunt like you're a poacher, meaning don't think you're going to get the second opportunity. You get there and get it done. You've got to be like you're hunting down ISIS.
0: Got it. Very nice. All right. We all have these things that we can't live without, and that if we leave them in the truck or at home and we're in the field, it drives us crazy that we don't have it with us. What's that one thing for you?
1: For me, it'd probably be a rangefinder as a bow hunter, man. I freak out if I don't have my rangefinder.
0: Gotcha. What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: My biggest pet peeve is probably macho men in the hunting industry, over aggressive face paint, and thinking that you got to pretty much lay and sleep in a bed of nails to prepare yourself to hunt through the grueling. Winter wonderland and be able to run 77 miles a day just in order to kill a doe in a food plight on opening day of Georgia deer season. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm at a place now to where I realize more than ever as a 43-year-old adult that hunting is fun. I choose to keep it that way it's the one thing that i can still relieve a lot of stress from the everyday business everyday personal life and i can enjoy it with my kids and family i got a little girl who turned nine she killed her a turkey i got a boy that's 16 he still loves to get out of school and come hunting with me and we try to make it fun and easy when we can and obviously through that situation there is some tough predicaments we'll get ourselves in whether it's a long hike or cold weather. But in the end, just have fun and relax. And it's a pet peeve of mine that we try to make it an elitist type of sport.
0: Gotcha. All right. How old are you today, Michael?
1: I'm 43
0: today. Okay, you're 43. What would you tell the 20-year-old Michael Waddell, knowing what you know today about life and everything that you've experienced? Never
1: make any hasty decisions. Um, is to listen to good counsel. Never jump into something that you don't understand all the details in. And, and, and definitely realize that you're going to get out of something, what you put into it, and that nobody in this world, whether it's an individual, your mom and dad, and or this country don't owe you anything, but it's all there if you're willing to go work for it and to take it. And if you're willing to do that, then you'll have a lot of people that will help you get to that top shelf that will get you the cookie off the top that you really want, but you're not going to. You're not going to start on the top shelf. You got to stop at the bottom and work your way out and work and not think that you are entitled to anything. That that would be my number one tip.
0: Okay. You meet a stranger in a lobby of a hotel at a hunting convention. They ask you what you do for a living. What do you tell them?
1: I tell them I promote and celebrate hunting and fishing in the outdoors.
0: Very cool. What did you have for breakfast this morning?
1: <laughs> Man, I- of all things, and my wife went and bought me some some honey bunches of oats cereal. I didn't even tell my kids I had it. I made them a sausage dish because I knew they'd eat all my cereal. <laughs> I get it. Uh,
0: <laughs> your private stash of <laughs> honey honey bunches of oats. I get it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yep. Uh, you get your own billboard. It's a blank canvas. What, what would you put on it?
1: I would probably put. If I had my own blank billboard, I would probably I would if it, if it had a. If it had a picture of me on it, and I ain't saying that it had to have, or, or nor would I probably pick that, but I would say here is successful because of the grace of God. That, that's probably what I'd have.
0: Excellent. All right. If I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops into your head and why?
1: I would say Chuck Adams. I, I don't know why. I know we mentioned him earlier. Um, I always looked up to Chuck, and I'd say why, because Chuck knew what he wanted out of life, and he stuck to it. He, he, he shaped his personal life and his goals around Achieving what it was that he dreamed of. And so, uh, so for that, I, I think Chuck is a cool success in my eyes because, uh, he kind of accomplished what he said after and he, and he sacrificed a lot, but he also gained a lot.
0: Gotcha. All right. What's a day in the life of Michael Waddell look like?
1: <laughs> to be honest with you, I, I would say very hectic. It, it's not as laid back. My personality is very laid back, but, um, overall, um, in starting a business like Bone Collector, I've had to learn a lot about the business aspects of things. And so I'm not educated. I don't have a college degree. I only had a, I, I just got out of high school, and so I've had to learn a lot. And so balancing family life with my kids, my wife, um, and, and business in a, in a hectic schedule of being on the road, there's a lot of demand for my time. And, um, and so with that, just trying to find uh, the balance between what can wait, what works, what deserves my priority, and to balance that between personal and business. And uh, I would say overall, the day in life of of Michael Waddell is way more stressful and hectic than most people would think. But at the end of the day, I'm always very gracious and thankful for for what I do have the opportunity to do.
0: Gotcha. All right. And finally, what does a deer hunting day in the life of Michael Waddell look like?
1: I think a deer hunting day in the the life of of Michael Waddell is, is... that would be more laid back than what most people would think. Um, I think the one time I can truly be at ease and relax is when I'm hunting and I get all the responsibilities of business and chores put away and my focus is just to hunt. And I would say it would be getting in the deer stand around 30 minutes before light. Uh, usually I I put a good four to five hour sit in and, uh, and, and, and relax based on the intel I got or based on my friend's information that he's given me and, or guide, and then and then hunt, and typically I'll always, I've never been one of those guys that's just bound and determined to set all day, even though I've done it a lot, I typically will come back and enjoy me a nice warm lunch and catch the football scores and and, and, and get back out there and typically put another four or five hours in, you know, in the evening and and just repeat as, as many days as the good Lord gives me an opportunity to do it.
0: Very nice, very nice. Well, that's the ten rapid-fire questions, Michael. It's been a pleasure, and um, thank you for being patient and putting this all together. I know we had some some scheduling challenges, but we we finally got it done. And it's uh, you know I, lo- I I appreciate your time, and I appreciate everything you're doing in the industry, and I love your honesty and your your candid uh, messages that you send. I think if don't ever change that, I think that's exactly what we need to hear as we go through this.
1: Well, I appreciate that, guys, and just like y'all doing on this show, the one thing I have learned is as a hunter, as a fisherman, as just a general outdoorsman, we have nothing to be ashamed of, and, and I think sometimes we're not honest enough with protecting and promoting what we do. It's uh, it's something that's sacred to me, and, and good Lord, give us this opportunity to put renewable resources out there. I've been very blessed, and I'm very rooted in what I love. I'm very rooted with my family. I love my kids, love my wife, love where I'm from, and I'm, pr- and I'm proud of all that. And so uh, thank you for what you said. And I promise you, as long as good Lord gives me an opportunity, I-, I can't say that I'll be perfect, but I'll do everything in my power to promote, to help more people enjoy what we all enjoy. And so, uh, man, thank you guys for having me on, man. It means a lot.
0: Michael's so down to earth. You just feel like you've known him forever. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, it's just a pleasure
2: to talk to you and, you know, decks full of information. And, uh, man, just a... Uh... We sure do appreciate Michael joining us for the show, taking time out of his day to
0: spend some time with us and and all of our listeners. It's just fantastic. He's a a good interview, a very knowledgeable guy, and we just enjoy listening to him, and I enjoy just kind of talking with him. like He's just just a kind of regular guy who who happens to be one of the most popular deer hunters in America. Yeah, you got to figure, Michael
2: Pitt's taught him everything he knows, so I mean, I, I can understand how he's so down there. Yes,
0: Michael is the polisher. He makes everybody better. He's great. Awesome. Awesome interview. Thanks to Michael Waddell for joining us on the Big Buck Street's Deer Hunting Podcast powered by USA Trail Cams. Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week? Yeah, we do, Jay. The Chubby Tines Tip of the Week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms. Bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, Morse'sSportingGoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods. Safety harness time.
2: Get your stuff out. Go through it. Tree stand. Climbers. Hang on. If you've got a safety harness that has a fray or a little bit of a cut or maybe you hooked it on a fence or maybe you hooked it on a part of your tailgate or something or a bolt sticking out in the barn where you had it. And it's got a fray or a rip in it. You know, guys, gals, friends of ours, you've got to stop and think, is a $100 safety harness worth your life? Absolutely not. Is a broken frayed cable on your hang-on tree stand or your climber worth your life? Absolutely not. Take that 100 bucks and get it fixed. Buy you a new harness or it, it may be more than 100 bucks. Spend the money. Be safe. If you come back with an injury or a wound, you, you're no longer enjoying your hunt. So just get it fixed, get it right, and and be safe out there. You know, there's so much new safety gear out there as far as the lifeline from the top, from the ground, clear to the seat. Right. Uh, everybody's like, oh, that's that's expensive. Well, it's, it's not really expensive when it comes to your life. I, I would pay quite a bit to keep my life from having a hunting accident. Right. So just, you know, use your head and and, and maybe uh, overlook a couple bags of corn to, to fix your safety equipment.
0: Yeah. I think more hunters get hurt every year falling out of a tree stand because they didn't have the proper safety equipment than they do in any other facet of hunting. Right?
2: Just you know, it's just a just a simple visual, hands-on look at everything. Put your harness on, look it over, lay it out in the garage floor, out in the grass, or in your living room, wherever your basement, and look it over. You know, you don't pull a bow back with a half-frayed cable in your face. Why would you hang yourself up in a tree with a frayed safety harness? Exactly. You just don't do it. You get it fixed or get a new one and and make it right. And I'm telling you, there's there's all kinds of Facebook groups out there. I'm, I'm gonna say something here. Get on Facebook, find a hunting group, and post on there. If you're low on funds, post on there that you need a safety harness. Other hunters will will postage you a safety harness that they got laying around. A good one, right? They're, you know, hunters take care of hunters. There's people out there that'll help you. Get on these groups on Facebook, you know, and find somebody that's got an extra safety harness. That maybe been sitting on a shelf for two years that they've never worn or opened a package of, and they'll ship it to you. No problem at all. You know that they're, they're, everybody's happy to help out when it comes to safety. So just you know, use your head and and don't get all excited about going hunting the next morning and you got a bad safety harness. It's not worth it. That deer will be there the next day. Take time and get your safety equipment right. Or man, it's not worth going to the woods. That's that you know that's something that I, me and Jay or Jay and myself cannot stress enough about being safe in the woods. We want to hear your story, not, not a horror story that you fell and broke your neck or your back or your legs or your arms or, you know, we see it every year.
0: Why, why should this be happening? You, you gotta wear some kind of safety gear. Exactly. Yeah. we spent, you know, that was one of the efforts that we, uh, focused on when I hunted in Ohio with you is we made sure we had our safety harness. You know, it's a little awkward and it certainly bulks up your gear, but it was absolutely essential. Yeah, gotta have it, you know. And a lot of
2: guys go on these hang ons, and, and and they're leaving the hang on out in the woods for all summer, and the weather just eats the cables out of them. Well, what what was really good last year could be really weak this year. So take that in consideration. You know, you gotta check your gear. Yep.
0: Just just because it, you know, you think it's good doesn't always mean that it is safe. Exactly. And I, I would guess that if you needed some stuff, Morse's Sporting Goods would be carrying that over at their place. I when, Last time I was there, they had a whole bunch of it. So if you want to, like, save some money on sales tax, you can buy it in New Hampshire right from Morse's. Listen to the ad, and you'll get all the contact information for that. Oh, that's that's, that's an absolutely great tip, Dusty. It's that time of year. We will all be in tree stands before you know it, and uh, check your equipment before you go out there make sure you're safe.
2: Yeah, it just uh, takes a few minutes, and, man, it could save your life. Absolutely.
0: Well, thanks to Michael Widell once again for joining us on the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast, and thank you to Jim Keller with the Deer News, and thank you to Morse's Sporting Goods for sponsoring the Chubby Tines Tip of the Week. Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here in the studio with me?
2: Shoot me an email, dusty at bigbuckregistry.com. You can look me up on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Chubby Tines Outdoors. Shoot me an Instagram and at Chasing Antler. Jay, where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic?
0: Best place to reach me is Jay at BigBuckRegistry.com. That's my email address. You can always follow us on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash BigBuckRegistry, Twitter.com forward slash BigBuckRegistry, Instagram.com forward slash BigBuckRegistry. We are officially on iHeartRadio now, and that's BigBuckRegistry.com forward slash iHeart. They uh, they snuck it into their directory, and I didn't even know it because we should have got an email and we didn't. But So I'm not sure how long it's been there, but it's been at least a week is my guess. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so we're there. On iHeartRadio now, you can find us and check us out if you're an iHeartRadio user. We're also on iTunes, on Stitcher. If you're on iTunes, please leave us a review. Uh, leave us a five-star if you love this show and subscribe to this show. It'll help us in the rankings. Not that we care a whole lot about rankings because i got to be honest, we just had over 50,000 downloads for the month. That was a, a new record for us, um, which is mind-boggling. It's crazy to think that 50,000 people wanted to Hear something that we're talking about, but then again, uh, it's deer hunting. So I would talk. I would talk about deer hunting. Um, if I were fifty thousand people, I'd want to hear about deer hunting too. And you can always uh, check us out on Stitcher, and you can check us out on Blueberry, and on the Outdoor Podcast Channel, where you'll be able to get some kind of outdoor entertainment seven days a week, sometimes twice a day, because we have teamed up with other podcasters other outdoor podcasters doing their thing over at the outdoor podcast channel you can just do a search on itunes for outdoor podcast channel we also have an app if you'd like to download it that's bigbuckregistry.com forward slash app as for an apple device if you're on some other device go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash g a p p and last but not least we are on google play and that's bigbuckregistry.com forward slash google and that is pretty much everywhere you will find the Big Buck Street Deer Hunting Podcast. Oh, that's a whole lot of Big Buck, Jay. It's a whole lot of Big Buck. I'm Jay Scott. And I'm Dusty Phillips. And this is the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week. Can't wait.